We wrote it down and we showed how the money was going to be deployed on a week by week basis. We wanted to raise roughly $200,000 to $300,000 because that's what our plan was dictating we were going to need in order to get there. And we didn't accept that anything was done until we had all the money in the bank. And that created more cushion for us, which meant we could start thinking bigger. Welcome to How to Raise a Round, Carta's podcast about one of the most challenging elements of every startup founder's journey, raising money. Each episode, we sit down with new and veteran founders to hear the stories behind their funding rounds and learn about the challenges, advice, and unexpected lessons they learned along the way. I'm Josh Durst Wiseman, manager of branded content at Carta and host of How to Raise a Round. Our guest this week is Nico Simcoe, co-founder and CEO of Claire, a New York-based fintech startup that's revolutionizing the payroll process for hourly workers. In April of 2020, just months after the pandemic hit the United States and the stock market crashed, Claire raised a $4.5 million seed round from some real heavy hitter investors, including Michael Vaughn, former COO of Venmo. As an immigrant from Switzerland, Nico understood how uniquely difficult it was to get paid as an hourly worker in the U.S., and he was determined to change the narrative of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. Nico was confident that his seed round would come together if he utilized his secret ingredient to a successful fundraise, keeping things simple. Hi, my name is Nico Simcoe. I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Claire. We are a digital bank that pays hourly workers and gig workers the second they clock out of work. Nico immigrated to the U.S. as an undergrad to study economics at Harvard. The idea for Claire came to him when he was a third-year student there and picked up a tutoring position as a side hustle. During that time, I got my social security number as a good uh, international student, got all the paperwork that is necessary in the United States. I thought that was a bit painful, but then the thing that was more painful was the way that I got paid. Now, it's safe to say that being paid shouldn't be the most painful part of a job. But Nico understood that for many Americans, a lagging paycheck could mean the difference between paying rent and being evicted. There was a very complex system for me to register the hours. It wasn't streamlined. And then at the end of the day, when I did get my paycheck, it actually arrived two weeks after the pay cycle would finish. They literally went through an entire process of sending me a physical check when I had a bank account. And I thought this was completely dumb. And then when I looked at the data, about 20% of Americans go through the same exact thing that I went through when I was in college. 20%. That's over 65 million Americans who were needlessly struggling with inefficient payroll systems. Nico knew something needed to be done. And when he graduated from Harvard with his bachelor's, he went to work as an analyst with a focus in payments at J.P. Morgan. There was something happening around 2016, 2017, where Uber and Lyft were starting to think, hey, what can we do to attract more drivers? And one of the things that they did was, let's try to pay drivers the minute they finish a ride. It was a grand idea. And the reason why drivers loved it was because most Americans were paycheck to paycheck, and most of them use payday loans. That's when it clicked. This revolutionary system didn't have to stay limited just to rideshare drivers. I kind of started putting together the initial part of my story, which was, hey, I actually got paid by check as an hourly worker. Is there a way to bring the Uber driver user experience of getting paid immediately and bring this to 80 million hourly workers? The idea was too good to sleep on. 
Nico scheduled a call with his boss to tell him that he was quitting his job, but as an immigrant on a work visa, there were higher consequences for this than usual. There was a moment where I sat down like five minutes before the call, scared to tell him I'm quitting because I'm like, I'm going to give away so many things. My visa was tied to JP Morgan. My salary was tied to JP Morgan. I just had savings for a few months, but I was going to get rid of all of this and jump into this big adventure. This is the big moment for a lot of founders. Do you quit your job to focus on building your startup? Five minutes before the call, Nico was wavering. He had 99 reasons to cancel the call and keep his job and only one reason to quit. And he needed to decide quickly if that one reason was going to be good enough. I just sat down, took a piece of paper and wrote down what did I need in my bank account? What was my last straw? I knew that every single day there was a flight leaving JFK, flying straight to Geneva, Switzerland, that I could just take. And I know that if I'd go there and I'd wait for two and three months, I'd probably get a job again. As long as I had 500 bucks in my bank account, I could buy that flight, sell everything in New York, and go back to Switzerland. And knowing what my worst, worst case scenario was gave me an opportunity and also a comfort that I think a lot of people don't have. And that's really what allowed me to go and say, okay, great, I'm going to jump into this heads first. Nico's first day at Claire started the minute he left J.P. Morgan. When I quit J.P. Morgan, I gave them enough notice so that everything I could do would be well-finished. But I was really, really anxious to get going. So I had on a weekend gone to an office space and rented literally a shoebox in a co-working space. I knew we could start off with my co-founders and kind of get going. Instead of going home and taking a breather, Nico hopped on the 6th train to 14th Street in New York City, where his two co-founders, Alex and Eric, were waiting for him. They rolled up their sleeves and got to work. The team at Claire could have focused their energy anywhere. They could have focused on fundraising like Philippe from Madi. They could have built a community like Laura from Brightly. But for Nico and his team at Claire, it was all about two things, supply and demand. Out of chaos we created structure and process in order to get there. We were very methodical around how we got from literally every day what we would need to spend our time on. And we organized it this way. We knew that time was money and we just didn't have money. So we needed to get stuff done early on and do it super smartly. The first step was supply. And for Nico and his team, that meant building an MVP. Alex, Eric, and Nico sat in front of a whiteboard in their tiny co-working space and formulated a plan. They went through their contacts to recruit their core team and built a simple MVP to get Claire up and running. Our problem for us meant, hey, our North Star is we want more than 50% of our workers and gig workers to be able to hit a button and get paid immediately. That's the North Star. Now, the thing is, we're a few people in a room with this big idea, and we know half of how to get there. So the supply side was up and running, but now it was time to generate demand. So Nico and his team reached out to potential customers to start understanding what their strategic needs were and how Claire could help them out. That's when things really started picking up. We learned extremely quickly in literally one weekend what a potential product market fit would look like because we started virtually pitching nonstop to all of these potential clients what we would build. Knowing what his potential clients wanted changed the game for Nico, and soon enough, Claire had enough real-life customer interest to raise their pre-seed. 
we wanted to raise roughly two hundred to $300,000 because that's what our plan was dictating we were going to need in order to get there. We wrote it down as simply, literally somebody who can read English and understand math could understand where the money was going to go. And we showed how the money was going to be deployed on a week-by-week basis. For the pre-seed, Nico raised a safe with a $5 million cap. His employees weren't even taking a salary at this point, and he needed the funds to keep going. Within two months, he had 500K in his hand to develop a product and grow his customer base. But Claire was picking up so much momentum already that only four months after he raised that pre-seed, he was already prepared to start on his official seed round. What de-risking actually means is actually something very, very simple, which is economics 101. You have someone who demands things on one side, and then you have someone who's able to supply it. Every fundamentally brilliant business was built on that. I can go back to Phil Knight, one of the great entrepreneurs, said runners are fundamentally looking for the best shoe to run in, and running is a demand that is increasing. On the other side, they said, I need to find the supply, which is I need to go get the best shoe in the world. The exact same concept could be applied to Claire. We needed to have the physical card in hand saying we started six months ago with nothing, proving that we were able to deliver with the first card physically in my wallet that it could flip out for each investor. And then at the same time, I needed to prove that demand was there, which is I needed a contract with an HR tech business saying, what these guys are doing, although they're young, is fantastic. I want to buy it. And that was as simply put as possible. That's what I needed. I needed a five-page deck explaining what we were doing. No complexity, just, hey guys, we're doing this. We have the demand. We have the supply. Let us go. We're going to get there. We just need support. And there you have it. Supply meet demand. With a physical card in one hand and Claire's customer contracts in the other, Nico had the two ingredients he needed for a successful seed round. We started planning for when we were going to need to hit our milestones and then get our first term sheet. We had planned for March 9th and 10th. It was the beginning of coronavirus and every single investor was freaked out. We had planned around this, and this is one of many things you learn as an entrepreneur is you just got to keep going and continue running your marathon, even if you feel like you're the unluckiest person in the world. Nico got started making the rounds and talking to investors for his seed round. But in March of 2020, that all came to a screeching halt when the Nasdaq fell 12.3% in one day. Nico felt a sinking in his chest. His plans to raise his seed round seemed to be evaporating right before his eyes. We were waiting for term sheets. So I was like, hey guys, look, I'm going to just finish at home, 5 p.m., let me just walk home. And then I'm walking through Times Square, getting to my apartment. I'm looking out, and Busy says, we're staying NASDAQ history. My phone starts ringing. It's that investor who calls and says, we're in. You heard that right. An investor called Nico directly as the NASDAQ was collapsing in front of him to tell him that they were committing to Claire. As you can imagine, Nico couldn't believe his ears. It was a completely freaking surreal time because, first of all, I didn't know if that investor was completely dumb or if actually we were onto something big. Because if I were him, I would have been like, wait a second. And that investor, Josh Diamond, He's one of the people that I respect the most because he's proof 
that some investors do things because of conviction and not because they're just following what others are doing. Josh Diamond's commitment to Claire helped set Nico back on track. After a roller coaster of emotions, his seed round was back on. Founders, especially first-time founders who were able to go through, I call it the alphabet of fundraising, will often not really disclose how hard it is at the beginning to raise. The market in VC is very primed to look at second-time founders who've been successful, but first-time founders is tough. And as a first-time founder himself, Nico felt the weight of his inexperience when he started pitching to investors. We had talked to probably 60 or 70 VCs, and all of them turned into no's. And the reason why they turned into no's was because I felt that in order to get them in, I had to explain to them the complexity of our business. I had to get them excited about how hard it was for us to get to the point we were at, was instead they're looking for simplicity and people who are in command of what they're doing. To put it simply, Nico was making it too complicated. He wasn't streamlining his pitch and he wasn't keeping it simple. If something didn't change, he'd be buying a one-way ticket back to Switzerland before he knew it. Telling a story in an elevator to them that gets them excited and also makes them understand why it is that what you're doing is fundamentally incredible and they should come out of this saying, wait a second, why hasn't this been invented yet? Now, Nico could control how he portrayed Claire in meetings with investors, but pitching is a two-way street. If the investors weren't putting in the effort on their end, then Nico wouldn't stand a chance. All he could do was give it his all and hope for the best. And when he secured a meeting with a big-name investor in San Francisco, he dropped everything to hop on the next flight and be there. And I remember the meeting was at 10.15 a.m., in San Francisco, I'd gone to Spirit Airline flight from New York because we didn't have any money, stayed in a motel outside of San Francisco, didn't want to pay for a cab, so I took the bus, got there early. I was kind of like, this is our one shot. 10.15 passes, 10.20 passes, 10.30, 10.45. People are kind of looking at me funny who are working in the office. 10.55, the assistant comes in and says, can I help you with something? And I said, yes, I have a meeting with Investor X from this big fund. They said, oh, uh, he's not in yet. Uh, let, me, let me ping him. So he comes in rushing. He sits down and he says, hey, man, I'm completely sorry, but I completely forgot to tell the partnership to do this. As you might have guessed, Nico walked away from the meeting empty-handed, but this time because of circumstances that were outside of his control. While it was devastating in the moment, his failed San Francisco meeting taught him a really important lesson. There's going to be a lot of bad VCs. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs. you got to keep going. You have to always ask for feedback, but also realize when things are not going to work out and you're just going to move from it. In your initial pitch to investors, you could be Steve Jobs, but you still won't get everything right. The key to improving is to ask professionals what you did wrong and what you can do better. Ask them why and try to get to the bottom of it and keep a very good list of what they're saying. Because if there is a trend, then you do have to address them when you are pitching. But then when people are disrespectful, then it's completely okay for you to stand up and go. Nico makes a good point here. When you're pitching to investors, you're going to hear a couple types of feedback, both good and bad. But how do you tell the difference between feedback that's useful and feedback that isn't? 
When it comes down to it, good advice is specific and contextual, as opposed to bad advice, which usually takes a vague 30,000-foot perspective, like, we love the space, but it just isn't the right time. It also helps to understand what each individual VC is looking for when you pitch to them. Sometimes their questions and advice might be oriented toward improving their own fund instead of your company. Remember, just because a GP wants to get into a new space, it's not your responsibility to fill their quota. In fact, when raising his seed, Nico had gone through 12 meetings with one VC fund that he later learned was just trying to find out more about his market. VCs are paid to have meetings and to get to know business models, to get smart. And sometimes there are VCs who are spending time to learn about the market because you know more about this market than anybody else. I think the VCs are in a position where they are making three or four investments a year. But at the same time, in order to make these investments, they need to understand the space. They need to understand the competition. They need to form what we call a thesis around what they do. And I mean, spending a lot of time with founders. There's a lot of ways they could read it and learn it on their own, but everybody wants to go and talk to the person who knows. And sometimes they do it with the pretext that they're actually going to invest. And that is a natural fallacy of the VC market. When it comes down to it, VCs are business people, and Nico found that sometimes they'll imply they're going to invest when in reality, they just want more information on a certain space. My bullshit meter is when I realize that the line of questioning is either bouncing around or it's very fluffy. If somebody asks me, so what's the TAM of this market after we've been speaking for like 45 minutes and they could have calculated this on their own because they know how much money we're making and they know how many workers, then I know I'm getting to somebody who's not mentally engaged or who's not able to understand this well enough that they're actually going to make an investment. And that's not the only thing that sounded the alarm in Nico's mind. I've yet to see somebody come to you and say, hey, I really, 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 really like you, but, and then it ends up being an investment. So I'd say that's another 90% of the time bullshit meter that this particular investor actually cares more about learning about you, trying to increase your ego. And then that makes you want to help them. And you're like, oh, they like me. Maybe they're going to invest. Well, the truth is no. If they're excited, they're going to get excited about the business at the same time as they're excited about you. When Nico was pitching to investors that he could tell were genuinely interested in Claire, though, their feedback was invaluable, especially when they could clue Nico in to current market trends. There's a few trends that we saw, which is, number one, a slow B2B2C distribution market. Another one for us, which was always there, was the idea that can you actually make money off of this interchange market? Advice like this really helped Nico and his team tweak their pitch so that it was clear how relevant Claire could be in the market. He learned to include how Claire could make money off of the interchange market given its current user base without the investors even having to ask. In fact, as time went on, every aspect of Nico's interactions with investors became streamlined into distinct phases. Phase one was the introductory call. It always starts with an introductory call. If they give you 30 minutes, don't try to pitch for 30 minutes. Try to pitch as little as possible so you can create rapport with them and really start digging with them and getting them excited. So once that is done and you actually got them excited, they ask you, hey, can you send me all the materials that you have? We'll do some research. Phase two is the hardest step. Investors are inevitably going to find competitors, problems with your business model, and other negative points when they conduct their research. 
they're going to start digging into your business model. And that is the scary part because what happens is they're going to be excited. So they're going to want to do the research, all of them. They only do research on a handful of them because they don't have capacity. So in order for them to do it, they're in an excited mode, but they're trying to see why it is that this could fail. They're going to come back with tough questions. Nico found that the best way to face this process was to prove to investors that he was in command of his company. One way that he did this was by using what we call typically language. When an investor asked Nico a question, he had to convey a sense of confidence as if he had already been thinking about that scenario, even if he didn't have a solution quite yet. In order to be really confident with these conversations is, in some way, radical honesty with the ability to remember that people will quickly discern if logic is not there, especially people who know the field. So radical honesty means, hey, do you know exactly how much people are going to be spending on the Claire card? Which is a question I got a lot. Nico thought carefully about his language in these scenarios. Often the best path was to say that this was a common question that he's already considered and explain his thought process. The takeaway being, you don't have to have all the answers in the room, but you should always be anticipating mission-critical questions. I say, well, the market of payroll cards is XYZ percent, so we're using this as a proxy to establish it. Now, there is multiple reasons to know why this number is going to go up, or there's also risks for why that number would be lower. Now, here's what we've done in calculations in terms of what that means for the business model. And in both cases, high, low, or even medium, so the three cases, we're actually in a positive business model. Having full transparency with potential investors in this scenario was priceless because it painted Nico's company in a positive light. If you get through that phase two and you get out of it with complete confidence, they understand, you get nods out of it, you get them back into the excitement mode because all the barriers that they've created, you kind of like broke them down. Now you've got them because this is the hardest part. Now comes the next phase, which is, hey, Nico, great. I now feel good about this. Why don't you come and present to my partner meeting? So now you have a champion inside of the VC fund. Then comes phase three, the partner meeting. It's usually close to one hour, and then there's enough time for people to ask questions. Questions are typically more high level than phase two. So this is when you want to be seen as an incredible leader and that they can trust you. Once that is done, then usually they go and meet the co-founders, they do more due diligence, and then you get close to a term sheet. Then it's just confirmatory. Overall, Nico's advice to founders in this situation is to stay calm and move forward with dignity. You might get the impression that the deal in front of you is the best that you're ever going to get, but it helps to stay grounded in the situation by having a strong conviction about what your needs are. Spend time analyzing with good advisors, which means lawyers, but also somebody who's been a founder before and asking them, is this true? Because there are ways where VCs can make you feel fantastic about the size of the equity pool, the valuation, the allocation they're taking, the size of the round, the way they want the board, and telling you, hey, this is the best deal you're going to get. And especially during a pandemic where they're like, hey, man, sign whatever piece of paper you can. But Nico was careful not to sign whatever piece of paper he could get his hands on. To be fair, VCs do have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize their own position, but it's easy to lose sight of that in the excitement of the moment. So before you sign on the dotted line, it's important to do your market research and talk to other founders and funds to get relevant context. As a first-time founder, Nico knew that his bargaining power would be relatively low until he had some solid evidence for Claire's success. 
But by doing a deep dive into what his company should be valued at given the current market trends, he could easily spot when a given deal wasn't mutually beneficial. It's also important for founders to stay humble and to realize that they're building long-term relationships with these VCs. So don't go overboard because you're going to create resentment. Come at it with a place of fairness. Come at it with an advisor telling you, hey man, realistically, you're probably going to lend there. Talk to two or three, probably there's a range. Realizing VCs are a little lower than that, bring them up, but then don't try to push it harder. While it's great to have conviction, you also don't want to overplay your hand. Pushing too hard could taint your relationship with an investor. And remember, you can't divorce an investor. So this is something you don't want to risk. We worked with a small hybrid fund. And so we were looking at credit lines. That fund had great people, super motivated, super nice. But at the same time, whenever it came down to seeing the piece of paper, there were a lot of terms that we had never discussed that were sneaky, that were legalized. They think they're sophisticated with these complicated terms, but they're not sophisticated enough to understand that they need to keep it simple because they're going to hurt the founders if not. Luckily, Nico had other offers that were better suited to his needs, and he was able to remain flexible when securing these term sheets while still advocating for himself and his business. We negotiated the term sheet with Upfront. Aditi was incredible to work with. That is really where relationships started. The way we handled the term sheet on both sides was the reason why I chose her term sheet, to be very honest, because I knew that I wanted her with me. They had set a date two weeks later to close and get the wiring of the money. And then all of it was good. I mean, we were in a company in infancy, but at the time we hadn't even launched the EarnWage Access solution. We were just beginning to build. We had a signed contract, we had a digital card, but we didn't have much more than that. But in the end, it didn't matter that that's all that Nico had to offer. He had a stellar product and customers who wanted it, and that was enough to get where he needed to go. It's the hardest thing to believe that when everything is fine, stuff will happen. You got to just get past it. We closed it up front a week and a half later than we should have. And since then, it's something that we look back and we're glad we're doing the right thing in our business because we're respecting all the laws and we built the right way. After a long month of soaring highs and rock bottom lows, Nico could finally breathe easy knowing that Claire was officially on the road to success. I remember when the wiring day arrived, we were all together and I kept refreshing the Chase account to see if it was coming in. And at some point we got the $4 million in the bank. It's the biggest number I've ever seen on a bank account, to be very honest. It's almost frightening because you're like, wow, that is a ton of money. And I remember that with the founders, we were still thinking, guys, it's still day one. At that point, we hadn't taken a salary in a while. So we were living a very simple life. If you're a founder, you can definitely relate to that. For months, Nico had been relatively isolated from his friends and loved ones while building Claire. He hadn't really taken time for himself in ages. But now the intense period of focusing day and night on funding Claire was over. Nico and his team could finally sit down, exhale, and for just one night, treat themselves. We hadn't eaten out that much. We had minimized our food expenses. And so we decided one of the big things we want to do is just do a huge barbecue. And so I went to the butcher, got us like the best piece we could find, put it in the oven, and we had just an incredible dinner with good wine, steak, and it was the best celebration we have. It's better than anything we've done since now because it was so precious for us. In the end, Nico raised $4.5 million during his seed round. LA-based Upfront Ventures led the round, and the rest was filled out with two other VC funds and some various high-profile angel investors, including the former COO of Venmo, Michael Vaughn. 
you got to be all in. Like the truth is, it's an incredibly rewarding experience and an incredibly fun experience, but you got to be okay with telling your friends, hey guys, like I just won't have time this month. Next time on How to Raise a Round. We were in our mid-30s at the time, and if there's any time to start a company, you usually don't hear this being the age to do it, but the thought was, hey, I was afraid that if I don't do it now, when would I be ready? And at that moment, we decided as a couple that I was going to take the risk and start this company. We hear the story of Christina Ross at Cube and her $1.25 million pre-seed round, which is big for a pre-seed. On Carta, the median pre-seed round is currently sitting at around $375,000 per company. Christina learned a lot of lessons from her pre-seed raise, the biggest one being how to eloquently pause a fundraise while still maintaining those delicate relationships with potential investors. It's all part of her story on how to raise a round. This podcast is presented by eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta, Carta Incorporated, and Carta Ventures. The opinions of the guests and hosts are their own and do not reflect the view of eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta, Carta Incorporated, and Carta Ventures. Listeners should not treat any opinions or comments as investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The content of the podcast is not legal, financial, or tax advice and is not meant to recommend or offer the purchase or sale of a security. This podcast is informational only. How to Raise a Round is a Hit Start Media production. The show is written and co-produced by me, Josh Durst-Wiseman. Hit Start Media founder Theo Miller is creative director. Olivia Laurie is production manager with sound production by Nick Canepa and script production by Mary Kelleher. This podcast is presented by eShares Inc. doing business as Carta Inc., Carta, and Carta Ventures. 